Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Caroline Goodson for a conversation about food in medieval Rome. Dr. Goodson is University Senior Lecturer in Early Medieval History at the University of Cambridge. She's Fellow of King's College. She's written numerous publications over her career, including the book, Cultivating the City in Early Medieval Italy, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Okay. So we're chatting about food today in the city of Rome in the medieval period. And so to work our way into that period, to create sufficient background for everybody listening and myself, um, before that period starts, so if we talk late, uh, kind of earlier late antiquity, um, perhaps in the 200s to the like 400s, what would the main types of food have been in that period of time? And how would uh, those foods been supplied to the city of Rome more generally? And there might not be a lot of contrast, but to create some background before we get to this period. So all over the ancient world, the principal food stuff is grain. The majority of what people eat every day is grain whether as uh, as a sort of porridge or as bread uh, or as flat cakes or um or or as sort of stewed uh faro spelt uh things like that uh, the that's really what people ate uh, in the ancient world and and ancient rome is certainly no different from that Beyond that, um, there's there's a huge variety in antiquity of, of fruits and of vegetables and of meats, of processed meats, of sauces, of stews that people add depending on their means and presumably their tastes. One of the things that's very interesting about cities in the ancient world and cities in, in, um, in the Roman Empire uh, in late antiquity is the enormous variety of things available certainly at Rome, but also at, at Naples, at, um, at Milan, at uh, Pavia, there would have been fairly extensive networks of the movement of foodstuffs into cities. So you could go to the market in Rome and buy imported uh, cheeses, wines, um, uh, salted uh, rabbits, um, preserved fish, uh, as well as fresh meat, fresh vegetables that were grown or hunted nearby and brought into the market. And in ancient Roman cities, you could often buy um, to-go food, takeaways. So you could buy food that was ready to eat in the street that had been cooked in a, a small shop or at a market stall and that didn't require uh, preparation at home this changes pretty significantly in the at the end of antiquity and the beginning of the middle ages and the changes are are part of of what's interesting about that period okay very interesting so i don't want to ask the um you know the overly uh uh obvious uh uh you know i don't want to make the statement i want to make i want to ask it as a question so what occurred 
that uh, made this change? And then we'll get into the, the changes. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I, I, as anyone who's looked at late antiquity knows, there's a huge number of social transformations associated with the period between about 300 and about uh, 600. Um, some of those transformations are changes in imperial administration, so the formation of the Tetrarchy, the, dis the disruption of the Tetrarchy, the reformation of the Tetrarchy, and then the reinstatement of Constantine as, as sole emperor. All of those political um, uh, changes had wide-reaching effects on, on, on everyday life in terms of economies, in terms of movement of people. Um, wider changes afoot in terms of uh, the climate, in terms of um, uh, larger geopolitical uh, patterns, um, conflicts on the eastern end of the empire, conflicts on the northern end of the empire, all of these likewise uh, moved people around in the empire and redirected resources in the empire. So where in, say, the second or the third century, which is where you wanted to start, um, there was a, a, a fairly reliable system of long-distance Mediterranean trade and fairly robust state-sponsored systems of, um, of the movement of agricultural produce alongside the movement of troops and the movement of, of people. Um, by the time you get to the later 4th century and the 5th century, those systems are less reliable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as I say, changes in administration, the movement of the imperial capital to Constantinople, um, the conflicts on, on the borders, all impacted to greater or lesser degrees the way in which people put food on the table. Okay. Yeah, and about a week ago, an episode on the show was published with... Uh, Dr. Drastos uh, Omisi on all the civil wars that were happening in the empire during this period as well. So it was a very, uh, yeah, very turbulent times. Um, okay, so we come into more the, uh, the main part period for this episode. Um, we're chatting more the, the Middle Ages, but more the um, uh, 6th century to 12th century. We had talked about prior to hopping on the show for the, mo for the most part. So what are the, some of the major changes then on how people actually uh, received food in the city of Rome because people still needed to eat? Um, and, and was there any change in the types of food uh, that was coming into the city or being grown in the city? I don't want to uh, presume that either. <sighs> right, so... So one of the fundamental um, stable aspects of Roman economy and Roman imperial administration was the annona, which is to say the, um, the regular distribution of grain and then later on also wine, also salt pork to, um, to citizens of Rome that grain was usually grown in uh, in North Africa and it was shipped on big um, um, state uh, vessels uh, annually for distribution at Rome. It wasn't, it's often called the corn dole or the grain dole. It, it wasn't really a dole in the sense that it wasn't intended to feed the poor. It was intended as a right of the citizens of Rome. And enormous efforts of imperial administration went into making sure that that happened. 
when Constantine relocates to Constantinople, in the period of those civil wars that you were referring to, the, that becomes increasingly difficult. And then certainly once we, um, once we start in, into the fifth century and we've got the, the Vandal conquest of North Africa, those principal estates in, um, in, in, in North Africa that provided the grain are, are no longer at the disposal of the imperial administration. Mm. And this all um, is part of, as I mentioned, wider patterns of change, um, wider um, ruptures in long-lived uh, economic and commercial and administrative systems. So it, it was no longer economically um, or even socially very prestigious to own enormous estates all up and down the Italian peninsula if the Italian peninsula is being um, harried and threatened by Ostrogoths, for instance. Mm. And it's no longer advantageous to have estates in, uh, in North Africa with the arrival of the, uh, of the Vandals. Um, the Vandals just took, uh, took possession of, of extensive estates and redirected the agricultural surplus towards their courts. So these key elements uh, in the feeding of the city of Rome and this, the, feeding, the feeding of, of other cities in Italy, in, in, in Constantinople and elsewhere, um, these principal mechanisms were fragmenting and breaking apart. And this is happening at the same time as, as other shifts in ideas of charity. So um, when Christianity became the dominant religion over the course of the fourth century. Christian uh, th theologians uh, had very different ideas about poverty, wealth, and who should be responsible for looking after the indigent. So these ideas all came in to shape and reshape how people ate. Populations in cities decreased over the course of the 5th and 6th and 7th centuries, uh, certainly it, it, everywhere in the Mediterranean world, but certainly in the West. Um, and, and Rome is no exception to that. Uh, the Italian cities are, are no exception to that. And so with the decline in population, you can also understand that there was also a decline in uh, mercantile activity and commercial activity. And so the the... Um, the, the demand was less and, and the supply was less and the supply was less and so the demand was less. So people stopped being able to eat ready-made foods and eat imported foods with the same regularity and ease that they had done in earlier centuries. Um, people stopped being able to count upon trade that piggybacked along um, state-sponsored commercial enterprises and long-distance transports. And people became increasingly reliant on very local sources of food. So that might mean uh, wheat grown in the hinterlands of a city. That might mean in the case of Rome, which was 
despite the decline in population, was still the largest city in 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 the Mediterranean uh, for most of the Middle Age, most of the early Middle Ages. Rome could import uh, grain from southern Italy as well as from its immediate hinterlands. But other cities in Italy were really increasingly dependent on their very immediate hinterlands. And people started growing their own food. Nobody grew wheat in their townhouses in the center of Rome, but Mm -hmm. people certainly started growing onions and garlic and lettuce and things like that to supplement what they would be able to get um, as dried foodstuffs that they could store. Okay, and so, and we'll go. We'll, we'll talk more soon about the them um, growing their own foods. But in terms of some of this, the staple foods that are very substantive, like the grains, um, you know, the meats. It's kind of those staple foods um, for energy. Um, what was what was occurring then, as Rome was being shaken up, if we can use that uh, term, in this uh, period. Was grain still coming in the, into the city? Was there still sufficient supply? If so, how 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 were how was grain coming in? How was the meats coming in? Um, so grain and um, processed meats were certainly still coming into the city of Rome. Um, they were they were coming in uh, much as as they had uh, had done before. So. If you are a wealthy landowner in the fourth century, you probably have multiple estates. You don't do any of the farming yourself, but you own large estates, and those large estates grow all kinds of things. Um, grains, certainly, if you're in Italy. Italy didn't grow a lot of olives until the Middle Ages. Mm. Um, so all olives and olive oil came from Iberia and came from the Aegean and came from North Africa as, as that was available. Um, meat is a, is, a, um, is a slightly different issue in, in part because um, certainly by North American standards, people in the ancient world didn't eat huge amounts of, of, of meat. Um, and the meat that they did eat tended to be um, salted and processed to allow it to be preserved. Mm. Um, so there was still um, in the sixth century extensive um, pig uh, shepherding in southern Italy, in part, uh, presumably to feed the mm. dependence of the administration in Rome. But the, the the principal foodstuff, as I said earlier, is is bread, is is wheat, grain, and um, and bread. So that's no longer being shipped from Constantinople, or sorry, from. Uh, from Vandal, North Africa to Rome, mm. um, it it may be bought from it, from from estates owned by the Vandals uh, by the imperial administration. There's been quite a lot of work on trying to figure out uh, how that process actually worked because we have relatively little evidence of urban famine in this period of enormous change. And so, what that speaks to is um, a diversification of risk in terms of food supplies. And by that, I mean that people started growing multiple crops instead of a single crop, which is a way of of sharing risk. Um, And people started growing and eating crops that they hadn't previously. 
So if we chart the archaeobotanical remains from sites in Italy and juxtapose what was going on in, say, the second century and what was going on in, say, the sixth century, mm -hmm. we can see a greater range of cereals being consumed in late antiquity mm -hmm. because there's greater range of cereals being grown locally, mm. by which I mean you get um, you get uh, sorghum as well as winter wheat, as well as emer wheat, as well as eventually you, you, you get some oats um, and, and barley. Bar barley is, is also principal um, from antiquity on. So we get things like grass peas, what you can still get in some parts of Italy as cicerchia. And you get um, a number of these vetches and, and small legumes, things that take a lot of work to prepare, but that are relatively easy to grow. Things that in antiquity would have been probably fed to animals are things that appear in people's um, kitchens in the early Middle Ages. So do you know if, um, if there's... Uh... Uh, if this is in the records the, around the pricing of these foods, do you know if the the actual pricing of food uh, went down uh, on the items that started to be grown locally versus because I'm I'm making the assumption economically if something's being grown locally, it's going to be cheaper uh, to get it to people in that vicinity than if they're importing it from a place like Northern Africa. So do you know if things like um, the stuff that was uh, being grown locally, if, uh, if there was actually a decrease in the, uh, the pricing of, of food in Rome? Well, I mean, you're assuming, when you talk about prices, you're assuming a real stability of an economic and administrative system that just didn't mm. exist after the 5th century. Mm. So coupled with all of these changes is the stark reality that coinage is no longer being made and no longer being used. Small denomination coinage is no longer being made and no longer being used. And um, we still get some bronze follies, so, so very relatively small um, denomination coinage in the sixth century, things that were minted as part of the Byzantine administration. But coinage kind of falls off of a cliff uh, and, and doesn't really uh, get used, it would appear, except in a notional way. That is, we get documents which refer to the value of a house um, and they use coins to describe it, but we, the archaeological record does not support the idea that people have coins in their pockets that they're using to pay for um, loaves of bread or mm. uh, wheels of cheese or, um, or chickens or things like that. So okay. it's, in, it's impossible to, um, to chart in terms of prices this mm -hmm. kind of change. What I think is a more useful way to think about it is what, is your, what does your pantry look like? Um, and, and economic historians have tried to think about this in terms of baskets. So, you know, what kind of, how many calories are needed to sustain a, a living person? And how do those calories, how, how are they... Um, how are they consumed? By, by which foodstuffs do you get these sorts of things? Um, and, and so what's in your basket? What's in your pantry? Um, and, and what I would su suggest changes is the, is the source of those. The variety uh, might increase, uh, but really only in terms of a, a relatively narrow uh, number of items. 
um, the, the kinds of things that we know about from ancient sources, the, um, as I say, the imported wine, the, um, the imported cheese, the, uh, the imported olive oil, those sorts of things we just see very, very little of, um, either in the textual record or in the archaeological record okay. by the time we get to about 600. Yeah, and if it's not as clear in that period, you know, what the actual price of commodities um, were, because it's just not that that kind of evidence isn't available. Um, probably looking at, you know, were there famines, were there not famines, were people able to get sufficient food is a, is a reasonable way to tackle that that uh, topic. Um, you did mention famine earlier. And if I was listening to the podcast, what I would do is press the back 15 second item <laughs> to hear hear the, the kind of the mention around the famines. So I heard you mention famine. Can you speak more about that? Were there famines or were there not, were there not famines in this period in Rome? Um, so there's there's not a huge record of uh, of consistent and regular famine, uh, and certainly not in in cities. There are problems in the sixth century. Uh, some are attributed to the wrath of God. Some are attributed to an increasing wet period that seems to correspond to what we know about climatological change in this period. Um, but and there are there are years in which we have accounts saying the crops have been poor. But but one of the other struggles that we really have once we get into the Middle Ages is that uh, so much of our writing comes filtered through the lens of church and churchmen, and churchmen when they're talking about salmon almost inevitably frame it around a, a divine intervention. And so it, it's 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 quite difficult to to take it as a as the kind of um, serial quantitative data that you might be looking for if you're wanting to juxtapose um, um, the regular ease of, of of regular food for people in the year say seven hundred versus the year say nine hundred versus the year say five hundred. So our source base changes radically, and it makes it quite difficult to compare. Um, in terms of what I think happened, um, mm -hmm. uh, there was always extreme poverty and urban poverty in the mm -hmm. Roman period. Uh, and there was so uh, in the early Middle Ages. There's a strong sense once um, ecclesiastical administration become involved in organizing cities like Rome, uh, but elsewhere, that it's the responsibility of the church to feed paupers. And so there is at least a, a kind of mechanism to, uh, to, to, to meet those needs. I'm not saying it was always successful, and I'm not saying that people didn't go hungry in the Middle Ages, but I'm saying that the, that the kind of social view of poverty changed and it became the responsibility of different parts of society. Okay, okay. so when it comes to growing the food, the individuals growing the food, um, can you speak a little bit more about that? Uh, is there any sense of how prevalent that that was? Was every family growing food? Was it like a minority of families growing food, but the local neighborhood re would rely on them? Can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, so one of the fundamental aspects of cities in the Roman period in Italy is that they have lots and lots of decorative gardens and they don't have productive gardens. 
Pompeii might be a little bit weird in that. Now, Pompeii is, is weird in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, but in Pompeii, there is um, there are areas that have been identified as, as market gardens, that is, as areas that have been um, given over to the large-scale production of food, not just for household consumption, but for selling on at market. Um, but... But Pompeii, as I say, might be might be a little bit weird in all of this, partially because of the earthquake that it, that that that, that mm. happened there prior to the the eruption of Vesuvius, which meant that quite a lot was destroyed and opened up, therefore, for a certain kind of cultivation. But certainly, when we look at the uh, archaeological remains of Naples, of of Rome, of of Brescia, of um, of Milan, of Pavia, of um, of of all of these um, sort of major Roman cities, we don't get a lot of evidence of productive gardening. Mm. So people didn't. That people may have had cultivated spaces in their houses. Very high status people for sure. But that was really decorative. I'm not saying that no one ever had a little pot of basil by their back door, mm-hmm. but that wasn't a real regular part of, of how you put food on the table. And that changes very, very notably by the time we get to 600. Mm-hmm. So we can see it in the archaeological record and we can see it in the textual record. So the letters of Gregory the Great, of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens, um, Gregory the Great writes a lot of letters about how he's dealing with the property issues that he's um, faced with as the Bishop of Rome. And he uh, writes about property that has been that has been passed on to him. So priests who die or wealthy women who die and leave their house to the church. And he doesn't really know what to do with it. Sometimes the houses are falling apart and they're derelict and they have to be maintained and looked after and that costs the church money. And um, and what he does in, in a number of, of cases is he gives them to religious households, to very small scale monasteries. And in many of those cases uh, at Rome uh, in particular, those houses have gardens attached to them. Mm. So when he's, and that's not, not something that he remarks upon particularly, he doesn't say, isn't it strange that these houses have these strange gardens that I have to deal with? For him, it, it is part of the urban fabric of Rome that there are townhouses that have productive gardens with them. Now, the texts don't say that they're productive gardens, but the way in which he talks about them makes it clear that they are. Because he says he gives these houses with gardens to these religious households so that they can um, meet their own needs and not have to go outside for for their daily supplies. So we see them in the letters of Gregory the Great. We see them in property documents from the seventh century in Ravenna and in Rimini where people are selling houses that are very clearly houses with a garden. Mm. And that, that the, the kind of number of documents that attest to these increases all the way through the first millennium. So by the time you get to uh, the 10th century in Rome, about a quarter of the property documents deal with, um, with urban properties, the rest deal with extra urban, suburban properties. Uh, and of all of the of, of all of the property documents that deal with with urban properties, over half of them have gardens. So it becomes really quite normal for for houses of of very high status and of kind of middling status to have 
a place where people grew things. And, and what they grew, as I say, it, they weren't growing grains in their townhouses. Um, that's not, it's not efficient. Sometimes they were growing olive trees. Um, often they were growing fruit trees. Sometimes they were growing wine grapes. Um, they were also growing um, greens. The documents sometimes specify greens or red beans and white beans. Um, or onions, or um, uh, um, herbs. Sometimes they're specified by name. Very often they're not. Very often it's just that the the plot is described as a garden. Okay. Do you know if uh, back in this period, uh, like the city of Rome, for for instance, um, had a had an ability to process olives into olive oil? I have a thing with olive oil, so I'm I'm, I'm curious about that. <laughs> Right. Well, the the the, the last um, so there are very few olive presses from the city of Rome itself. Um, there is one that came from an archaeological site on the Aventine from late antiquity. Um, if I remember correctly, it's been dated to the fifth century. But there isn't a huge a lot a huge amount of evidence for the processing of olive oil in the city of Rome. And, and that's really quite remarkably different from the late antique cities of, say, North Africa, um, where Hippo Regis, I mean, the cities of North Africa are filled with olive presses. It was a completely normal thing for people to be doing in, in late antiquity in their cities there. But, uh, but a lot of that is because of what I said earlier, that, um, that olives were not grown very often in, in, in Roman Italy. Um, that's they were imported and that's a, a kind of new development that takes off after the fall of rome and and during the middle ages okay yeah um and uh a lot of people don't realize this so in canada for instance italian olive oil is probably the most popular that you would just typically buy greeks up there as well but in terms of if you, if you go into a grocery store italian olive oil is typically the uh the most popular the most uh, uh prevalent um, but but the actual largest exporter of olive oil in the world is actually Spain, by by far, by far. And uh, but Italy Italy produces some of the best olive oil in the world when you look at the competitions. Um, so it's, it's not surprising to hear that they weren't necessarily producing a lot of olive oil even in this period because relatively speaking they still don't produce a lot of olive oil uh, today. Why well, I mentioned the prevalent part at, it, at the start of that comment about it, it being in Canada, there's probably other factors for that. It could be consumers' um, response to it. It could be trade agreements with Italy. I don't know all the particulars, um, but, uh, but known to produce very high quality olive oil, Italy. Um, and Spain does too, but, but Spain is by far the largest exporter. Okay, so... Uh, do you would you go this is interpretive caroline do you do you would you say that the the growing of um food in this period in the city of rome was it what do you believe that if you were to get in the mindset of the families did they look at at it as a necessity like they felt like their livelihood depended on them growing food or do you think that it was more elective like typically most households today in you know uh, in the uk and canada the america australia when they're growing food at home it's typically an, an, an elective thing right so do you think it was a necessity for people do you think it was elective do you think it was somewhere in between those uh two uh uh two poles that's a very difficult question to answer but it's an important one um 
I think it's probably somewhere between the two. Um, I think that um, I, I'm going to say something I've already said now several times, but it's really important in this whole conversation to remember that the everyday food stuff for the majority of people in the ancient and medieval world was something to do with grain, somewhat processed grain. And, and, and that is not anything that anyone's growing at a household scale. No, it needs to, right? Cereal is something that you can plant and leave for months and then come back and harvest. Um, it's the stuff that goes on it or goes with it um, that people are using and they're growing at, at home. So are people's livelihoods dependent upon it? Maybe not. But is it a central part of how people put food on the household table? Absolutely. Mm. Is it a marker of prestige? Well, this I think becomes quite interesting because you can see gardens which are sort of in everyday houses. And you can also see food gardens that are attached to really quite high status households. And I mean, one of the things that's fundamental to understand about, about how property works in the early Middle Ages is that the value of land lies in part in what you can grow on it. But the other value of land is, is what you can do with it socially, which is to say you can sell it, you can uh, rent it, you can promise it as a gift upon your death to an ecclesiastical institution. You can loan it to someone for a few years in return for the expectation of military service. You can, um, you can sell it and then buy it back with your friend who needs a loan. So you can use land uh, in, in a whole bunch of different ways that that are divorced from actually growing stuff on it and selling what you grow on it. So gardens work in similar ways, I find. And this is, this is part of, of what has emerged from the work that I did for that book. Um, that is to say that you can see people using gardens to feed their families in a pretty straightforward way. But you can also see people very deliberately um, building relationships with their subordinates and their superiors around parcels of land that have, that have cultivated uh, areas, right? So let me give you an example of that. Mm -hmm. One of the examples that I, that I use really quite extensively or that I make a big deal of in my book is the gift of parcels of land from Berengar of Italy. So he's the king of Italy at the very end of the, of the 9th century, beginning of the, of the 10th century. Um, he's based in Verona. Um, he is struggling to assert his power. And uh, he uh, tries to, 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 he take, takes the title emperor, he tries to be emperor. Um, in, in the, the very end of the Carolingian, um, the territories of the Carolingian Empire, um, he achieves enormous political success in part because he gives away huge chunks of agricultural land. Some of that are, is grain fields in the, the, the sort of hills um, um, of the Veneto uh, around Verona. 
but some of it is gardens in the city of Verona itself. And those, I argue, are very visible and very powerful expressions of what you can get if you align yourself to Berengar. So his most faithful vassals get these parcels of land within the theater of Verona uh, that have gardens in them. And again, these aren't these are productive gardens. They're not uh, they're not uh, luxury gardens, pleasure gardens. They're productive gardens, but they are also very visible social expressions of the allegiance between certain vassals and this uh, ruler. Okay. Okay. And then um, by the end of the period that you focused on the most, so the up to around the um, the twelfth century. Is there any major changes by the end of this period that we're talking about that you want to highlight for everybody? Well, I mean, once you get to the 11th century, you're looking at essentially the beginning of the commercial, what the so-called commercial revolution of medieval Europe. Um, the 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 population having swung down somewhat uh, in the early Middle Ages, picks up again pretty significantly by the time you get to the, the 10th century. More people are living in cities. Demand in cities increases for a wider range of goods. The ability to produce at market scale becomes again possible. So I can see in the documents from medieval Italy, um, the, the arrival of markets and marketplaces in cities, as well as market scale growing of food, grain, um, uh, uh, other kinds of agricultural products. That's what creates uh, the economies of, of medieval Europe, that intensification of the systems of the early Middle Ages. They just become bigger and bigger and bigger uh, so that it becomes commercially viable to transport foodstuffs across the Mediterranean Sea again or up and down rivers and uh, to, to engage in large-scale commercial exchange of goods. Uh, so, so that, that, that the, the period I'm talking about really has very specific bookends Right, the economic and political and cultural worlds of late antiquity and the later Middle Ages are very different from this period that I'm talking about in the early Middle Ages. Okay, when you go to Rome, what's your favorite food to eat? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, well, I, like everyone for millennia before me, really like bread. So mm. I would go and get a pizza rossa from uh, Rascioli on uh, in, in near the Campo di Fiori. Uh, some things don't change too much over time. Thanks for coming on the show, Caroline, and sharing your knowledge with everyone. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody. The book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Goodson wrote as an example, Cultivating the City in Early Medieval Italy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Caroline and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.